Our scripture reading for today comes from 1 John chapter 4, verses 13 to chapter 5, verse 5. This is the word of the Lord. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us his spirit. And we have seen and testified that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God abides in him and he in God. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. By this is love perfected with us, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment. Because as he is also, so also we uh, are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God, and everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. By this, we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey his commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? This is the word of the Lord. Uh, so we have been going through this series on First John, and we're actually getting pretty close to the end. And this is a letter, <clears throat> this is an important letter for us because it reminds us of something very simple and basic, yet something that is uh, non-negotiable of a believer, which is the importance of love. And there are different reasons why I think this letter in particular would be appropriate for some of the things that we are going through now, uh, especially as a country, because this is a time that seems so polarized and divided. And what should be obvious in this kind of climate is that the one thing we need more of is love for the other. And how you define the other, I guess, will depend upon you, but it's the person who might be different from you. It's the person who might have a different ideology than you or a different politics than you or a different life experience than you. And without love, you can have uniformity, which basically means we can see, we can uh, congregate together around this uniform perspective and create these echo chambers where nobody challenges one another. But you can't have unity, which brings different parts or disparate parts together and binds them. Love is, is like the binding agent that brings all these things together. Now, in verse 19, John says, we love because he first loved us. And God revealed his love by sending his son. And what that tells us is God's love is not passive, but it's active. God first loved us before we loved him. God made an active choice to send his son to die on a cross for us. You see, a passive love would say, as long as I am not causing harm to someone, then that's good enough. Uh, they say, as long as I don't uh, overtly offend someone or hurt someone, then I can tolerate a person. And maybe that kind of thinking can create passive aggressiveness, but God's love shows us that the nature of love is actually much more than that. If God's love were passive, and if he were to say, uh, I won't actively harm you, but I won't send my son to save you either, then we wouldn't actually be in a great spot. 
God's love has to be active in order for it to have any power to do what it does for us. And so love is active, which is the only way these different parts can be brought together and bound together. So I think about it like this. Love is like this magnetic force that uh, attracts or draws these different metallic pieces together and it holds them together. And just like a magnetic force, uh, it always has to be this active force in doing the work of keeping things together. It's not enough to say as long as that magnetic polarity isn't in the reverse and repelling things, then it's good enough because if there is no magnetic force at all, what's going to happen? The whole thing falls apart. And so when it comes to the church, when it comes to the followers of Jesus Christ, obedience to the command of love is a non-negotiable because that is how the world will know the love of God and how God's love will be made complete. Now, last week, we focused on the source of love in God himself. And John said it, says it again in this week's passage. He says, God is love. To know God is to know love because God is the very source of love. And the best way to know love is to know God. To know love outside of God doesn't mean you can't know love, but it does mean that you only know love in its lesser and derivative forms. And so if you are a believer and if you know God, then you know the source of love. And according to John, that makes a world of difference when it comes to being able to love one another. In verse 13 of this passage, John says, we abide in him and he in us because he has given us his spirit. And that language of abiding signals that there is this deep, close connection between God and us that you know theologians may sometimes refer to as uh, the mystical union. This union is something that is organic and personal and transforming. And the illustration Jesus uses, as Dan mentioned John 15, also from John 15, uh, Jesus uses this illustration of the vine and the branches. And if a branch is organically connected to the vine, to a healthy vine, to a life-giving source, then it will necessarily produce fruit, like Miss Natalia talked about for the children, because the vine will continually feed the branch with its nutrients, that the, the nutrients that it needs in order to grow. The only way it will not grow fruit is if the branch is disconnected from the vine. And therefore, if love is the fruit, then we will love one another because we abide in God and he abides in us. He has given us his spirit, which is the only reason we can confess that Jesus is the son of God. It's the only reason we can know and believe the love that God has for us. Now, I, throughout the series, I think I keep wishing I were a much better preacher because whenever we hear about the love of God, uh, I think we should be moved to, to tears in our eyes. And even uh, myself, I'm not moved to tears in my eyes, but uh, really, it doesn't happen by way of uh, the giftedness of the preacher, but uh, we get touched by the love of God because the Holy Spirit ultimately illuminates the love of God for us in Christ. God has given us his spirit, and with his spirit, we have a person, we have a power, we have a presence, and we have illumination, and we have conviction, and we have faith, and ultimately, that is where love comes from. It's not generated within ourselves, because that gets exhausting. Rather, the power to love comes from knowing the source of love in God, and there are implications for knowing the source of love. You can't say that you love God and hate your brother because that betrays the implications of what it actually means to know God. 
So today what I want to do is I want to talk a bit more about the implications of knowing God and what should what that should produce in our lives. Now the first implication has to do with what John says about the day of judgment and that's why we read it for from the Heidelberg Catechism before um, when it refers to judgment. Where does our comfort from knowing that uh, Jesus will come back and judge the living in the day, uh, living in the dead, as it says in the Apostles' Creed. Now, in the previous passage, we saw that God's love is made complete when we love one another. And here John uh, says God, or uh, John uses a similar phrase and says, love is completed or perfected when we have confidence for the day of judgment. That means we believe uh when there is a day of judgment, everyone will stand before God as our ultimate judge. And uh, standing before any kind of judge is, you know, not, it's not an easy thing to do. I remember many years ago when I was in seminary and I would drive back and forth from uh, the Philadelphia area back up to northern Jersey. Uh, one time I was driving through, I guess it was around Trenton, and uh, I got a speeding ticket. And... Uh, you know, when I got the speeding ticket, uh, I was driving, I think, 70 miles per hour uh, because the speed limit was 65 miles per hour. But then the police officer who gave me a ticket, uh, he wrote down that the speed limit was 55 miles per hour. Uh, and then I tried to, you know, say, hey, I think this is not 55 miles. Anyway, so I, he, he didn't listen to me and then he drove away. So I was like, oh, I have to dispute this ticket. And um, I had to go all the way to, to Trenton in order to do it. Uh, you know, other times I've been in court, usually what happens is you you talk to an attorney or like the, the prosecutor and you kind of, they might say, well, let's knock it down to a lesser charge, a lesser fine, no points. And then you go before the judge and then they read something and you plead guilty to a lesser fine or a lesser charge. But for, I guess, whatever reason, maybe the, the courts in Trenton are a little bit different. Uh, when I went to this court, I actually had to stand before a judge and I had to present my case. And I'm not an attorney. I'm not used to standing before a judge and uh, trying to make a case. Uh, and it, it's quite an intimidating experience. And even though I, I felt like, you know, I was in the right, uh, I still went five minutes, I mean, five miles per hour over the speed limit. So, you know, I was a little bit guilty. Uh, I, or, I, you know, I, I pulled up data online from the internet about what the speed limit was in that area. But I wasn't 100% sure that that was the official data or the right data. And so uh, think about it. If it's hard to be confident standing before a human judge over a tiny little speeding ticket, I can only imagine it would be much harder to be confident standing before a perfect and holy God as judge trying to vindicate myself regarding the entirety of my life. But John says, when God's love is perfected with us, we have confidence for the day of judgment confidence for the day of judgment. Uh, I think Western cultures uh, seem to struggle with this idea that God is a judge uh, because it doesn't seem like it comports with the idea that God is love. And I think you can sense that in the ways our cultures try to create safe spaces. So safe spaces are said to be these non-judgment zones, whether it's this parent group, whether it's at the gym, whether it's in addiction recovery, uh, these kinds of groups. The way that you make people feel safe is you eliminate any kind of judgment. So this place is safe because there will be no judgments upon you. Uh, but, you know, non-Western cultures don't seem to struggle with 
that as much, uh, although I'm not sure if they would define safe spaces in the same way as Westerners do, but at least theologically, I don't think they have a big problem with the day of judgment in Christianity. In fact, they may actually derive great encouragement from knowing God as judge. And I suspect the reason for the difference in perspective uh, probably has to do with uh, you know, your own experiences of injustice. I was listening to this interview from a theologian uh, who teaches at Yale. His name is Miroslav Wolf. And uh, he was just telling about his, you know, the way he grew up. And when he lived in the former Yugoslavia, uh, he says he saw a third of his country, he's from Croatia, he's Croatian, a third of his country was occupied by Serbian forces. And he had to ask himself, how do I respond to this as a Christian? And at least internally, he felt like the surge of violence within him at all of the injustices that were done to the people in his country and to his country um, as a whole. And you know, he came from a Pentecostal tradition, and this tradition in particular believed in pacifism. And so this urge towards violence was something that uh, went against the tradition he grew up in, and it's something that he had to wrestle with. And eventually, he realized that the only thing that would really make him feel like he could withhold violence was the knowledge that God would be the one to bring the sword on the day of judgment. And he realizes that's going to sound really unpopular to Western ears, but he is drawing upon his own experiences. And he says what helped him, what gave him encouragement during those times, what helped him to restrain his own urge towards violence was the reality that one day God is going to come and judge all evil. And in that sense, God's love and judgment are not at odds with one another, uh, but they actually go together in a sense because it's because of God's love that all evil has to be judged, uh, which is probably better understood by those who are on the losing side of injustice. And just to bring it back to our context, that's probably why uh, you know churches, black churches, black communities, um, and other communities who are oppressed probably have a better theology of justice uh, than uh, white communities or white churches because they have experienced being on the losing side of injustice and therefore the idea that God is judge informs or encourages uh, how they understand how justice will actually uh, be done. But, you know, but still, we, we have to reckon with the fact that we will one day stand before God on the day of judgment. And how confident do you think you will be on that day? We haven't always been the greatest sons or daughters or brothers or sisters or fathers or mothers or husbands or wives or neighbors or employees or employers or citizens, right? Uh, we have often been motivated by selfish gain and self-preservation rather than love. We have all oftentimes responded with anger rather than patience or gentleness or kindness. We've often held on to bitterness towards people rather than extending forgiveness. We've often been complacent to the plight of the poor and the outcast rather than being compassionate and sacrificial. And so if we are honest with ourselves, we should not be confident for the day of judgment. We should be frightened of the day of judgment. But John says in verse 18, there is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. Now, I think uh, people use this popularly to uh, say, you know, it's addressing all kinds of fears, but uh, actually John is specifically talking about the fear of God's judgment and his punishment. 
So why should we be confident on the day of judgment? Why should we not be afraid um, at the prospect of coming and standing before God's judgment seat? The answer is this, because God is love. In that love, God first loved us, and he sent Jesus to be the propitiation for our sins when he died upon the cross. That's what we saw last week. In that love, we abide in him and he in us. In that love, he has given us his spirit. In that love, we can confess that Jesus is the son of God. In that love, we can know and believe the love that God has for us. And therefore, on the day of judgment, we do not come before an angry God ready to punish us for our sins. But because of Christ, we come to a God whose wrath has been exhausted. It was exhausted upon his own son when he died upon the cross. We come to a loving father who calls us his beloved children. And if that is who we come to on the day of judgment, there is no reason to be afraid because there is no more punishment doled out on account of the sending of his son into the world. That's why perfect love casts out fear. One of the ways you know that you know that love is when you have confidence for the day of judgment and fear is cast out. And when that happens, God's love is made complete with us. Second implication has to do with our relationships. Verse 20 says, If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. Now, this isn't the first time John has said something like this, and so this isn't going to be the first time I'm talking about it in the sermon series. But hate, of course, is, uh, is evil to God because every human being bears the image of God. And to hate or to insult or to murder a person is to attack an image bearer. Every human being is full of dignity because every human bears a likeness to the image of God. And John talks about loving a brother that we can see versus loving God, who, God whom we do not see. And I think part of what that means is that one of the ways we see God is by seeing him through his image bearers. So if we cannot love his image bearers, then how can we love God who is the original image that all human beings reflect? Uh, John Calvin says it like this, It is a false boast when anyone says that he loves God, but neglects his image, which is before his eyes. So if you claim to love God, then you cannot hate one who bears his image. If you do, John calls you a liar and questions whether you really do love God at all, because loving God and loving one another go hand in hand. Now, I don't know if I've uh, really hammered this home or said this explicitly, but let me say it here. You know, when John talks about loving one another, uh, you should know that he's actually thinking about um, the church. He's looking at it in a Christian context. He's talking about loving one another in terms of believers loving one another. And, uh, you know, John doesn't use the language of brother when he says you can't hate your brother to refer to your uh, blood brother or your sibling. Uh, and I think that's obvious, probably obvious to most people. But the use of the, the, the language of family is intentional because he is talking or thinking about your spiritual brother or you could say spiritual brother or sister. Uh, in 5.1, John says, everyone who believes that Jesus is a Christ has been born of God. And everyone who loves the father loves whoever has been born of him. And so the context of loving one another for John is for the people of God to love your spiritual family, or to put it another way, to, to love the church as the people of God. And that actually echoes what Jesus said with respect uh, to his disciples towards the end of his life when he tells them to love one another. 
Now, I can imagine some people would think, um, you know, that sounds a little bit too exclusive if believers are supposed to love other believers. And maybe your expectations for John to say you should love people in the world for some kind of evangelistic purpose. And I think that's true. And I think the Bible would affirm that. And we could look to other passages and scriptures to um, figure that out because, you know, other scriptures talk about loving one's neighbor. But at least in this book, John is putting the emphasis on loving other believers. And for Jesus, loving one another within the church is actually what serves uh, an evangelistic purpose because he says that is how the world will know the love of God. Uh, you know, yesterday I happened to see this on uh, social media, on Tim Keller's social media, but uh, very providential is a great quote and it fits the sermon, but uh, he says, unless the world sees people getting along inside the churches and between churches, who out in the world don't usually get along, why, uh, why won't they just think we are just like any other cultural or political group? And I think that's true. You know, if there's a reason for why the world doesn't see the church as beautiful or the love of God as compelling, it's probably due to the lack of unity and the same kind of hatred that is out there in the world, the same kind of hatred that's based in social differences or ideological differences or racial differences or political differences. And if that's the case, why would anyone be drawn to the church at all if it's not genuinely or really expressing the beauty of the love of God in Christ? And so you see, therefore, uh, loving one another, loving believers, loving the church, um, unifying the church around uh, this common faith and this love that we have received is incredibly important in terms of testifying to the world regarding the love of God and showing the compelling beauty of the love of God. It is that important. Now here's a final implication and uh, we're getting near the end. The final implication of knowing God and his love is that his commandments are not burdensome. And that's what John says in 5.3. He says, for this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments and his commandments are not burdensome. Now, that's a really interesting way, I think, to describe God's command to love. I think most people, when you hear the word commandment, you find it burdensome. Uh, and I think the reason you find it burdensome is because, uh, you know, you have to obey that commandment um, or you have to fulfill some kind of expectation of that commandment. And uh, the only way a commandment can will not be burdensome is actually when that commandment is done from a place of love. Now, there was a, a story that I read in a book this week that I think illustrates this well, and uh, let me end with this story. Uh, there was a, a man, and he was born in this small Midwestern town at the turn of the 20th century, but uh, this man, he, he was actually born with a significant deformity. And therefore, when his mother and his father saw him, they rejected him and they refused to nurse uh, this baby, they refused to love this baby, but they knew that they had to keep this baby because they were responsible for this baby. And what they ended up doing is they hired this young immigrant girl to take care of this baby. And uh, this girl who herself felt lonely and lost in this new world uh, embraced this baby. And so for the next five years, this girl raised the baby, showering him with love, looking into his eyes, uh, touching this baby with a kind of tenderness that he did not get from his mother or father. Um, and eventually, uh, at the age of five, what the parents decided to do was institutionalize the child uh, simply because it made more financial sense to do so, to institutionalize the child rather than pay this girl to care for him. 
And when they made that decision, this young girl grieved as if she had lost her own child. And she sang to him and she wept tears as she held this five-year-old boy for the last and final time. And so what happened to this boy is he ended up growing uh, up in, into a young man within uh, the confines of these harsh institutions. And eventually over time, his memories of this young girl had all but disappeared. The only thing he remembered was her name. When his 18th birthday came, uh, he was freed from the asylum and he was so miserable that he decided, um, I'm going to use this new freedom and I'm going to take my own life. So he walked up a hill and he had this pocket full of pills and his plan was to consume these pills until he took his final breath. And upon that hill, he kept thinking to himself and reminding himself that he was someone who was unwanted. He was someone who was unlovable. And uh, he, he said to God, why God, why have you hated me so much? Uh, why haven't you ever cared about me? And at that moment, he was interrupted by someone who was singing behind him. Uh, he heard this voice singing, God's mercy is wide, God's love is deep, and you, dear child, are loved. And even though this voice was so clear, when he turned around, there was nobody there. And he realized he was still all alone on that hill. But that voice was enough to make him realize he was not alone. And he ended up putting the pills back in his pocket and he walked down this mountain. Now, uh, as he grew up into an old man into his 70s, uh, throughout the course of his life, he was always trying to make sense of that voice he heard on that mountain. And in his old age, you know, by chance, he got word that the name he had remembered or carried so near to his soul, that name of this young girl who had cared for him during the first five years of his life, that she was still alive. And so his wife encouraged him and said, hey, you should um, get together with her. You should arrange a meeting with her and have her come uh, visit us. And he was like, I, you know, I'm not sure I want to do that because I barely remember anything about her. The only thing I really remember about her is her name. But uh, at the encouragement of his wife, he did it anyway. So she arrives and she is now in her 80s. And for this uh, man in his 70s, seeing her face brought back the certain feelings uh, that kind of came to the surface that had been submerged for decades. Uh, he felt her care, he felt her joy as though he were five years old again. And as they sat together and talked, his memories of years of torture were being washed away. And then as she held his hand, she asked him, do you remember what I used to sing to you? And he said, no. And quietly with her beautiful voice, she sang that song. God's mercy is wide. God's love is deep. And you, dear child, are loved. And a shiver went through him and his mind raced back to that hilltop when he was 18. And he realized that it was her song that had come to him upon that hill. He had asked God why he was unloved. And God responded through the song that he had heard as a baby from this young immigrant woman. Now for this young immigrant woman, caring for this young baby with deformities was not a burden to her. Bathing him, cleaning him, feeding him, holding him, napping him, singing to him was not burdensome. Why? Because just as she sang, she knew that God's love is deep and you, dear child, are love. And that love filled her with love for even a baby who had certain deformities, who was rejected by his own mother and father. The song that she sang to this baby boy is the same song that fills our hearts as well. And when that song fills us, 
and love flows out of us, to obey that command to love one another is not burdensome, but it actually becomes a deep joy and a deep privilege for us. So may God fill us with his love. May we love one another. May our love for one another not be a burden, but a delight, because God's mercy is wide, God's love is deep, and you, dear children, are loved. Let's pray.